Good morning. It's great to be here with all of you. Thank you to the worship band. Thank you to Dr. Still for that kind introduction. I feel like I've come home to be here at Druitt Seminary. So thank you, and it's great to see you. Leon Macbeth is a Baptist historian, um, and he once quipped that if any of you want to get away from women, here is a way you can do it. Just get into the pages of Baptist history. Women will not bother you there. Uh, well, for decades, scholars of Baptist history focused on men and the institutions that they led. Some Baptist historians started writing about women in the end of the 20th century, but much work remains to be done. And another area where more scholarship is needed is global Baptist history. Most histories of Baptist focus on those in the United States or sometimes in England. And as we move through the 21st century, we must better understand Baptist beyond our own borders. The Baptist movement has spread to almost every country in the world. And so we must move beyond our own all too common myopia and learn from and with each other. And so in that spirit, this morning, I would like to talk with you on a topic related to global Baptist women's history. And that's the stories of eight of the first women ordained by Baptists in Atlantic Canada. As you heard, in 2018, I moved from Texas to Nova Scotia, where I started learning the rich history of Baptists in the region. You can see here the four Atlantic provinces of Canada. You get a little geography lesson today as well. Um, Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, Prince Edward Island, and Newfoundland and Labrador in, in the green. Before any Baptists were in Texas, Baptists were well-established in Atlantic Canada. But my lecture today will focus on more recent Baptist history, since, as in Texas, Atlantic Baptists only began ordaining women in the mid-20th century. And as I share stories of Baptist women from Atlantic Canada, I encourage you to think about the women you know in ministry and how their stories might be similar or different. Are circumstances comparable in Canada and the United States? Has the passage of time changed any attitudes or strategies related to women in ministry? And how might Texas Baptist women today relate to these women's experiences? Well, a little about Atlantic Baptists. They're an evangelical denomination, as are Texas Baptists. And I, I feel at home with both groups, actually. Um, here you see Josephine Kinley Moore, who was the first woman ordained by Atlantic Baptist in 1954, which was 10 years before the first ordination of a Southern Baptist woman. So a little bit earlier, um, but Moore was really an outlier at the time. The next two ordinations of Atlantic Baptist women didn't take place until 1964 or 1970. And so of those three first women, two are now deceased, and unfortunately the third has dementia. So I wasn't able to interview them, but um, there were 10 women ordained between 1976 and 1987, and eight of those are still living, and I was able to interview those women. 1987 was when the denomination voted to affirm women's ordination. Uh, so that the fact that 10 women were ordained during these years demonstrates the increased interest among women in ministering and among the churches and denominations of recognizing that, minist that ministry formally. So I conducted, along with my research assistant, 
oral history interviews of the four women you see here and then the four on the next slide, eight women ministers among Atlantic Baptists. Of course, an oral history research is necessarily subjective. The women themselves are sharing their stories. But their words provide a first-hand account of their experiences as they recall them. So this lecture analyzes the interviews I conducted with these women, and it argues that these women navigated the challenges they faced in ministry using two strategies, quietly pursuing their callings while ignoring detractors, and prioritizing personal relationships. So I want to talk about several factors from these women's lives and experiences, starting first with their call. Well, as leaders in an evangelical tradition, Baptist ministers, as you know, are expected to have a sense of calling, a divine call to their vocation. And these call experiences can especially be helpful for women in ministry. Um, as Judith Bledsoe Bailey recalls in her work, recalling the calling can help women persist through difficult circumstances. Elizabeth Legacy, whom I interviewed, demonstrated the benefit from her own experience. I'll be sharing several of the women's own words. She had challenges in her seminary education, but she said, I knew I was where I was supposed to be and what I was supposed to be doing, so you know, you get frustrated, but you keep going. Her sense of calling allowed her to persist through challenging circumstances. And the same was true of many other women in my study. Most of the women I interviewed felt a desire to serve God from a young age, just as sociologist Kathleen Steves observed in her research. Chris McDormand, one of the women I interviewed, said, I've always felt a call to ministry. She said she was as young as six years old when she knew she would be not married or having children, but instead would dedicate her life to serving God. In her case, then, singleness accompanied her vocational call. But this wasn't the case with everyone. Joyce Hancock recounted, I felt called at a really young age. Miriam Erstrom, similarly, was at a Baptist camp. Many people feel calls, maybe some of you did, at a camp. And she was nine years old, and she told her counselor she wanted to be her, a minister. And the counselor said, you can't, because you're a girl. But that, those were typical views of Atlantic Baptists during the time. But Erstrom persevered because she knew she had been called by God. She wasn't the only woman to feel a sense of calling while attending a Christian camp or conference. Among others, Kathy Neely struggled to reconcile her gender with her calling and found resolution during a retreat in Ontario. In her words, I finally just said, Lord, I'm going to be obedient to you because I feel that you're calling me, and so I need to hear that and respond to that. I don't fully understand all the scriptures. So as an evangelical, Neely wanted to interpret what the Bible said about women with integrity, while at the same time following the call of God that she felt had been placed on her life. And maybe some of you are in that same situation. Other interviewees felt the same way. Sarah Palmiter at first shrugged off the call she felt because she believed that women couldn't serve as ministers. But she realized that God could use her in a variety of ways and assented to that call. Unlike their male colleagues, these women had to grapple with their callings in a conservative denomination where some believed that the Bible had prohibited women from serving as ministers. Sound familiar? As a result, the women I interviewed 
likely felt more secure in their callings after examining the issue and making up their mind that God was indeed asking them to serve. This confidence propelled them through difficult times in their ministries. Well, several scholars have noted in their book, Clergy Women, an uphill calling that some women underwent memorable one-time experiences calling them to ministry, while for others, the call was more gradual. The same was true in my study. Ida Armstrong Whitehouse was called at a specific point in time after she laid the fleece out, she said, and asked God to show her that she was being called to ministry. On the other hand, Elizabeth Legacy said that her calling, it was sort of a real gradual thing. I remember struggling with it, just the whole call and, of course, the aspect of being a woman. Sharon Budd had a similar experience because she didn't have female role models in ministry. Bud found it hard to imagine herself in that role. After teaching school for several years, she found herself wondering whether she were called to ministry. When she expressed this to a former Sunday school teacher, that woman replied, it's where you've always belonged, but it's taken you a while to figure that out. Bud's story demonstrates the importance of mentors in ministry who are willing to name the gifts they see in others, along with the challenges that women face in discerning their callings in conservative religious traditions. Bud also provides an example of a woman pursuing ministry as a second career, as Steve's found prevalent in her study. So whether they felt called instantaneously or gradually, all the women in my study eventually acknowledged that God was calling them to ministry, even though this vocation might be challenging for them because they were women. They persevered in the pursuit of their calling, even as they sought clarity of it for themselves. Over time, they would return on multiple occasions to their call experiences during difficult periods of ministry. And I imagine that the same was true of Baptist women in ministry in Texas. What about relationships and role models? Family relationships were important to the interviewees from their childhood to their older adult years. These relationships provided encouragement and challenges related to the women serving in ministry roles. Out of the eight women I interviewed, seven grew up in families that were active in Baptist churches, absorbing the faith tradition in which they would later lead. They had generally positive relationships with their family members and felt affirmed by their parents as they sought to understand their callings. Miriam Erstrom explained that her father, a Baptist minister, said he didn't know what he thought about women in ministry, but he told me, do whatever God calls you to do. Again, that language of calling. Parents of women like Erstrom had not usually seen women serving as ministers, but they affirmed what they considered to be God's work in their daughters' lives. Their supportive, faith-filled homes gave the women a secure environment from which to work out their vocations within their denominational context. Well, like their parents and most Atlantic Baptist women of the time, most of these women, unfortunately, did not know any female ministers. That's a tough place to be in when you feel that's what God's called you to do. Several responded as Sarah Palmiter. I really can't say I had any female role models. One interviewee did name a female adjunct professor at a seminary, and several mentioned female missionaries who served in what was a more common role for Baptist women during this time. One woman did describe a female Baptist minister who was not ordained as a role model for her, helping pave the way for her future pastorate. 
demonstrating that though such women were few, they influenced other women to serve as ministers. Most interviewees, however, did not know any female ministers. Elizabeth Legassi noted some practical implications of this. She said, without knowing, I guess, you model yourself on male pastors. You sort of felt maybe a bit like you had to do the same things they did because that's your only role model. I do remember having the question, well, how are you supposed to dress? I don't want to necessarily wear a suit all the time, you know, that kind of thing. So women like Legassi didn't have mentors for things like pulpit attire, among other topics. This lack of relational connection with female role models was a challenge for the first generation of women in ordained ministry. While they often experienced positive support from their own families, they usually had to imagine for themselves what a woman in ministry looked like. And unfortunately, the same is still true of many women in ministry today. And that leads us into ministry challenges. The women who participated in this study served in a variety of ministry roles, including pastor, associate pastor, missionary, and chaplain. Scholars have noted that ordained Baptist women face challenges in ministry, not surprisingly. And this was true for my interviewees as well. Several experienced ongoing opposition because of their sex. As Joyce Hancock put it, I found that I was very often on the rejection side of things. Yet the women quietly persevered in their ministries to which they felt called. Church and even family members sometimes disapproved of the women serving in ministry because of their belief that the Bible prohibited it. Sarah Palmiter's mother remarked, I wouldn't want to have a female pastor. Palmiter was dismayed to hear that because that was the role that she felt called to serve in. More frequently, members of the churches in which the women worked made comments or took action that showed that they disapproved of having women ministers. In Chris McDormand's case, a group of university students and their leaders left West End Baptist Church when they found out that she would begin serving there. When Ida Armstrong Whitehouse was called to be associate pastor of Bedford Baptist Church instead of the less authoritative title, director of Christian education, there was great debate in the deacon's board, she said, and one deacon resigned. First Baptist Church of Dartmouth, however, did assign Joyce Hancock the title of Christian education director, even though the male pastoral staff were called ministers. The women faced discrimination because they were women. Although these challenges were difficult, these conservative women did not typically confront them head on. Their attitudes were generally like that of Ida Armstrong Whitehouse, who said, I don't feel like I have to prove myself. I just have to be faithful. Perhaps this type of quiet commitment and avoidance of conflict was a strategy that helped the women persevere even in difficult circumstances, as it does for some women in ministry today. Women with more radical perspectives may have acted otherwise. In their study, Barbara Zickman et al. noted that women ministers report that they feel discrimination because they're not paid well. And this was true of some of the women in my study. Some churches seem to assume that male ministers were the primary breadwinners for their families, but female ministers were only supporting their husbands' salaries. Again, sound familiar? Chris McDormand recalled that she didn't go to the dentist for 25 years because she didn't have adequate health coverage. Joyce Hancock also said she was underpaid by her church. She said, I think it was some of the women in her congregation 
when it came around to budget time, they made a big deal of the fact that I was earning much, much less than the rest of the pastoral team. And they came forward and said they would not accept if I had not gotten better, if it had not gotten better. But what I heard later from the lead pastor was, wow, you're getting a good increase this time. Aren't you lucky? Instead of words like, you know, the church has asked that you be put more up to the level of the vision. It was more like, well, aren't you lucky? Hancock's situation revealed the sexism of her lead pastor along with that of the congregation, while also demonstrating the growing awareness of equality among a few female congregants. Also significant was that Hancock herself did not bring up this issue of payment. She again remained silent. Whether this strategy compromised her ministry or was necessary to preserve it is debatable. What is clear is that Hancock, like the other women in this study, did not pursue feminist activism in the course of her ministry. She preferred instead to keep her head down and serve as she had been called. Interviewees faced opposition to their ministries beyond the local church as well. Joyce Hancock served on the mission field in Brazil, and she noted that her colleagues excluded me from a number of things and kind of sometimes pretended I wasn't there. She wasn't treated as the equal of ordained missionaries who were male. Sarah Palmiter experienced similar discrimination within her Baptist association, where she noted that there were two very strong opponents of women in ministry. Comparable situations occurred in other associations and within the denomination as a whole. Sharon Budd discovered this firsthand during a break from a convention meeting. As she reported, a number of other male pastors came in and they started talking about ministry issues and one of them interested me so I made a comment to interject myself into the conversation and the conversation stopped. So I said, um, okay. So they started talking about something else so I interjected myself again and the conversation stopped and I thought, I could keep them changing their conversation all afternoon. All I have to do is keep interjecting. But they didn't and I went back to reading my book. The pastors in the room with Bud ignored her, perhaps thinking that a woman in ministry wasn't worthy of a voice. Her response demonstrated her reluctance to be seen as a woman with an agenda. She decided not to continue interacting with the men. Thus, she appropriated the same strategy of silence that the other women in this study used. They found that persevering in their ministries was more fruitful than arguing with those who disagreed with their presence denominational conflict. Mark Chavez notes that there's been conflict over women's ordination within virtually every U.S. denomination. And the same could be said of Canadian denominations, unfortunately. This issue came to a head with Atlantic Baptist in the 1980s. In 1986, a delegate to the convention assembly gave notice of the following motion which he made at the assembly the following year. I move that the examining council be directed in keeping with biblical principles, no longer to examine women for ordination to pastoral ministry. Basically, this motion would prohibit Atlantic Baptist women from being ordained. The topic, as you might imagine, became a highly contested one among the denomination's members leading up to the 1987 assembly. At the assembly, discussion of the debate, of the motion, extended beyond the 42 minutes that were allotted with vigorous debate. Some of the women I interviewed attended the assembly and recalled their experiences there. Ida Armstrong Whitehouse, when she learned of the motion, she said, oh glory, is this gonna be the end of ordination for women? Sarah Palmiter, however, was quite confident that the motion would be defeated. 
None of the women, however, spoke publicly to the motion during this assembly. Perhaps because of their conservative convictions and environment, the women in this study used a strategy of silence during the denominational conflict. Apparently, the women trusted that God would lead the right side to, to win, to persevere, rather than trying to influence the assembly's vote. Elizabeth Legacy explained, I just don't go into battle over it. I figured God would prevail and it would go the right way. Miriam Erstrom and Sarah, Sarah Palmiter recalled counseling other women to remain silent as well. Erstrom advised, if you are where God has called you to be, just be confident in who you are and don't worry about what anyone says. I never got into a debate with anybody. In this way, she appealed again to the women's sense of divine calling to sustain them. Sarah Palmiter went further. She said, some of the girls came to me and they were really upset and said, what are we going to do? And I said, we are going to do absolutely nothing. There are enough men in this denomination who support the ordination of women, and if I see one of your names in the paper, I'm going to kill you. Because we would be seen as radical feminists out to prove that we, could not, that we could do it and not obeying the call of God on our lives. And they said, well, what happens if? And she said, I said, then God's got another plan. You know, don't worry about it. We're following God's plan. That's all we're called to do. So like Erstrom, Palmiter appealed to the women's sense of calling to urge them to strategic silence, using God's plan as a justification for inaction. Unlike Erstrom, Palmiter explicitly expressed, at least during her interview with me, that silence was also a strategy to avoid further stigmatization within and possible rejection by the denomination. So Palmiter and other interviewees, while embracing many of the goals of the feminist movement, were reluctant to be called feminists. My previous research shows this was also true for many Southern Baptist women. Kathy Neely said, I wasn't really a women's liver. Sharon Budd said, I've always avoided the word feminist. And Elizabeth Legacy added, I don't think I've ever considered myself an avid feminist. Because of their conservative context and convictions, these women looked on feminists with skepticism and feared being associated with such a group. They worried that this type of association would hurt rather than help, would hurt rather than help their cause. Others in the denomination, they thought, would see them as liberals rather than as Bible-believing conservatives who happened to be women. These women were the product of an evangelical denomination. They were not liberals. And they avoided what they considered the radicalism of the feminist movement, while still benefiting, I'll say, from gains they received from the movement for women in ministry. While the women remained silent, the men did not. Uh, many men from the denomination debated the resolution about women's ordination from the floor of the assembly. In the final vote, the convention agreed decisively to, containing, to continue ordaining women as ministers, and that's a difference from the Southern Baptist Convention. Ida Armstrong Whitehouse recounted, all I can remember was the fact that in the end, I was still ordained. Although, or maybe because, they had not been vocal, the women had experienced a victory through the convention's actions. In the years that followed, many more women would seek ordination. As they ministered, they also navigated expectations and roles related to families and marital status. While marriage and singleness play an important role in the career path of women in ministry in North America, it probably will not surprise you 
that most women in Atlantic Canada in the late 20th century were expected to assume the primary responsibility for the care of their families, whether they worked outside the home or not. Of the eight women I interviewed, five were married during at least part of their working years. This introduced both the closeness of family relationships and the challenges of family responsibilities to their lives. As the interviewees had children, some stepped down from full-time ministry to care for their families. Sarah Palmiter commented, I think it's still a really hard struggle for women with young children in ministry because all the expectations are still there. They're still expected to do all the pastoral duties, but they also have young families. Congregations without prior experience with mothers in ministry often assumed that their ministers would be available at any time and would attend meetings in the evening, as most male ministers had done while their wives cared for their families at home. And maybe this also sounds familiar to some of the women in ministry in the audience today. For those interviewees who were in full-time ministry, women's second shift at home often proved rather difficult. Kathy Neely understood this challenge as she gave birth to three children in four years. So instead of attempting to juggle the responsibilities of work and family, she chose to resign from her ministry role and take 10 years to raise her children. Later, she resumed work on a part-time basis. Elizabeth Legassi found that serving part-time with a governmental agency provided flexibility for her young family. She and her husband did not both serve in ministry roles until their children were older. Her husband also cooked most of the meals for the family, demonstrating how non-traditional family roles allowed her to balance work and home. Ida Armstrong Whitehouse's husband went further, staying home to care for their two children while she worked. When her children were infants, she explained, my husband would bring them at 10 o'clock for a feeding for 10 minutes, and then he'd go on his way and I'd go back to ministry. In this way, I Armstrong Whitehouse and her husband negotiated the roles and requirements of parenting while allowing her to minister full time. So the married women I interviewed sometimes found creative ways to balance the demands of family and ministry. Well, three of the eight women that I interviewed remained single throughout their careers, as had some of the female missionary role models whom they admired. This presented them with both opportunities and challenges, especially as related to relationships. Joyce Hancock said that single women were freer to do things that opened up for me, as she described about herself. They didn't have responsibilities toward a spouse and children but they also sometimes reported feeling lonely, especially those who served in remote locations. Sarah Palmiter was single during her first pastorate, and she became depressed because she had few friends her age that were within an hour's drive. Chris McDormand reported, being in ministry was very lonely, because if you didn't have a family and didn't have a husband, it's like you're kind of outside of, like what do people do with a single woman, right? Single women in ministry, were in the minority both because of their vocation and their marital status. Especially in ministry roles, churches typically assumed that their pastors would be married. Interviewees related both benefits and drawbacks to being single, especially connected to relationships. And whether they were single or married, interviewees also expressed a commitment to care for family members, especially aging parents. Three of the eight women resigned from their ministry roles to care for ailing family members. Because women have typically been seen as nurturers, 
they have assumed such caretaking roles more frequently than men, as you're aware. It's unlikely that a similar percentage of male ministers among Atlantic Baptists resigned to care for family members in need. Joyce Hancock, who was serving as a missionary in Brazil, recounted that the Lord said, you need to go home and take care of your mom. So again, she's using this language of divine calling. Miriam Erstrom did also. She said, now that God's asked me to stay home, now he's asked me to stay home to take care of my husband. Although she acknowledged that that was tough. Both women believed it was their God-ordained duty to care for their sick family members. They did so with gratitude, but also with some reluctance, as ministering to their family members required that they end their paid ministries. These women, like many other women in ministry across North America, prioritized personal relationships. They did so within their congregations as well as with family members. So let's talk a bit about congregational relationships. The women I interviewed noted some crossover between ministry among family members and congregants. Some explained that they regarded their congregations as a kind of family. After Ida Armstrong Whitehouse left her first pastoral charge for her husband to become a minister elsewhere, she reported feeling a deep sense of loss, as if she had lost a family member. I was just so grieving over the loss of this congregation, she related. When she assumed pastoral responsibilities in another location, she explained that we became, again, a family. Armstrong Whitehouse used a metaphor of family, familiar from her personal experience, to describe her relationship with her congregation. Sharon Budd similarly used familial language, this time detailing the way her congregation behaved toward her. She said, they also treated me like a family, you know? And whether that's because of my gender or just because I was there so long, I was almost family. Bud wondered whether her congregation was more likely to regard a female minister than a male minister as a family member, perhaps because of popular conception of women as mothers and carers. Miriam Erstrom demonstrated a compassionate familial approach to ministry with her congregation. She said, I could stand in the pulpit and look at my whole congregation in the eye, and I would say, good morning, church. I love you so much. Let's worship the God who loves us. What man could say that? Erstrom understood that cultural gender expectations would have made it harder for a male minister to profess their love to their congregation. Not only Erstrom, but multiple interviewees used emotions associated with family relationships to describe their ministry connections. Several interviewees elaborated on what they considered to be women's unique approach to ministry. Sharon Budd said, I think sometimes women have more sensitivity. Sarah Palmiter affirmed, women are made to be nurturers. Miriam Erstrom acknowledged that she was making generalizations, but she said, I think it's far easier for women to be pastor than men. Women love to lead people to healing, wholeness, and faith. These comments reflected a belief that on the whole, women were, were innately more sensitive and caring than men. While others at this time would likely have noted the challenges that female ministers faced, Miriam Erstrom emphasized women's natural fitness for ministry. Similarly, Ida Armstrong Whitehouse noted that her gender gave her leeway to serve pastorally. She said, being a woman, it was easy for them to allow me to be creative, compassionate, or show the softer side. Rather than regarding their nurturing tendencies as complicating their work, these women felt that these traits were advantageous to their ministry. 
scholars have demonstrated that other female ministers in Canada held similar convictions. In my experience, many Baptist women in ministry in the southern United States also prioritize relationships, especially because of their socialization as southern women. So what are we to make of this? In conclusion, the eight women interviewed for this project, ordained by Atlantic Baptist between 1976 and 1987, were indeed pioneers, as Sarah Palmiter's professor had once called her. In order to negotiate challenges in their calling, denomination, and ministry, the women often remained strategically silent while relying on their spiritual sense of calling to sustain them in difficult times. As evangelicals, the women prioritized personal experience and piety in their ministries, and they avoided actions that would have labeled them as liberals. Pragmatically, they realized that loudly advocating for the cause of women in ministry would have brought further opposition. As Joyce Hancock recalled, had I pushed the limits and wanted to be recognized as a pastor, I think there would have been a lot of trouble with that. She was on the mission field. Theologically, the women themselves were conservative, as were other members of their denomination. They appealed not to feminist rhetoric, but to divine calling to justify their ministries. The women also prioritized personal relationships in their ministries. Interviewees worked to balance responsibilities among the congregations with those of their immediate and extended families. And sometimes they had to leave full-time ministry to attend to family concerns. Their roles as daughters, mothers, and wives claimed priority, although their church families were a close second. Single women experienced both fulfillment and loneliness as they defied stereotypes of traditional ministers. Both single and married women expressed gratitude for their family's support, but noted that they had few female pastoral mentors. The relationships that these women cultivated, along with those that they lacked, yield insight into women serving in ordained ministry among Canadian evangelicals in the late 20th century. They might also provide interesting comparisons with Baptist women in the United States for future studies. So have things changed for Baptist women in ministry in Atlantic Canada, or for that matter, in Texas? I believe that many women are still strategically silent. Many may simply want to pursue their calling with excellence rather than advocate for a cause. This could provide a non-threatening introduction to women in ministry to those around them and keep the women focused on ministry goals rather than other issues. But other women in ministry might feel that they must keep their heads down and their mouths closed to succeed in ministry in a conservative context. They may, may feel that speaking out for themselves as women would label them as troublemakers and damage their ministries. These women may also feel pressure to be passive rather than prophetic. Many women in ministry also utilize relational approaches to their work. Both in Atlantic Canada and especially here in Texas, women are raised with the expectations of nurturing relationships and prioritizing family. This often leads women to shoulder domestic burdens, such as care of children and parents, to a degree not expected of male ministers. This requires flexibility of schedule for the women and sometimes leads them to scale back or drop out of the paid ministry workforce to attend to family concerns. It also often results in more single women ministers who do not usually have the same demands of caring for family. Even today, many women in ministry use their relational strengths in pastoral care, demonstrating compassion in situations of need and treating church members as family. 
While sometimes this can lead to displeasure among congregations who expect their ministers to act in stereotypically male ways, I would posit that when churches allow women in ministry to operate out of their strength, it usually leads to thriving congregations and ministers. These Canadian Baptist pioneers then provide through their service insights into women in ministry past and present. My hope is that their stories will inspire additional women to serve and churches, denominations, and seminaries to increase their support of women in ministry in tangible ways. I look forward to the day when women in ministry are no longer pioneers, but are as common as men in ministry. And I hope that in Texas, as in Atlantic Canada, that day comes soon. Thank you.